good after well good morning it is not afternoon yet good morning this is my but, it, but it, it might it might be afternoon when people are listening uh or it could be another whole entire day right how about yeah. how about good how about good day good day good day yeah, good day th- kind sir good day. exactly good day mate we could yeah anyway so this is michael vandervoort and john hyman doing improv uh on on drive through hr this morning and we're doing our uh, fourth episode of our occasional series of shows that we call labor relatedly where we talk about uh, labor relations issues from a practitioner and a labor or a labor lawyer perspective and kind of share our thoughts and opinions and as usual there's been a few things that have developed that we thought we would get together and chat about for a, a bit so we're going to cover uh, we're going to cover a sh- some thoughts on a Sherm article which that that was written uh, the other day that was ta- that talked about how uh, how employers should uh, get along with their labor unions, which I have some opinions on, as I think John does well, as we well. Have some, we have some definite opinions. <laughs> so, and, and so we'll, we'll, get, we'll go to that last. And then on, on t- in front of that, there were two or three other developments, probably the one that got the most news headlines and that we collectively know the least about was there was a pending uh, railroad strike that would have potentially taken virtually all the railroads that operate in the United States, including Amtrak, which isn't even part of the, isn't even, wasn't even part of the issue, would have taken down Amtrak as well as all the commercial railways in the United States and put about 115,000 or so railroad workers on strike. Well, that was, that didn't happen, at least for now. It's, and this thing has been pending and developing for like three years, but the unions had threatened to strike as of today if they were unable to reach a settlement. And through the efforts of uh, the federal government, you know, starting with Joe Biden claiming claiming credit, as well as Marty Walsh and some other folks we've talked about on the show in the past, uh, they reached a tentative agreement that at least for now has has, uh, caused the strike to be put aside pending a ratification votes by several different union locals across the country. Um, so that's, uh, I guess, good news because it could have had a, it, a pretty big impact on the economy from what I understand. Given like, the you, supply chain issues we've been yeah. dealing with since COVID and uh, where inflation is, I, I, uh, I'm not an economist, but I'll play one for a second and just pretend that I believe that it would have been just catastrophic for our country if the, if the shipping, if the railway shipping lines would have gotten shut down, even, yeah. for, even for a week. Yeah, I think people don't realize like like how much like the ports, the 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 ports in, in in the on the east and west coast and you know and around the country and the railroads, I don't think they realize how much how what an integral part, you know, it, how complicated that is and then trucking and you know yeah, any, any piece to, of it breaks down, right? It's 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 trauma. Yeah, I used to represent I used to represent in, in an intermodal trucking company, which for those that don't know they're the trucking companies that basically take the when the giant container ships come into the ports they take the containers off the ships they put them on trucks and then the trucks take them either transport them themselves or more likely or what usually happens is they transport them to rail yards and they and they get put on trains and then take them off the trains then when they when they get to the um you know when they get to their their wherever the destination is so yeah it would have been an absolute mess for um, and I was in a car accident a couple of weeks ago and I'm waiting for my car to be fixed. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my car is never going to get fixed if the parts that are needed can't get on a train to get to where they need to go to yeah. get onto my car. So, 
and, and depending depending on what kind of car you drive, it, they have may have to ship the parts from Japan or Europe. Yeah, it's a Subaru. Uh, I don't know where I was. It was made in Indiana, so hopefully the parts yeah, are here. But yeah. who, who the heck knows? So. You never know. Um, so anyway, yeah, I saw it on the internet, which obviously means it's true that there was one prediction I saw is that it was a two billion dollar a day impact if the strike started happening to the economy, which is a big number. Uh, what was interesting about that, beyond the fact that it could, I guess, shut the shut the economy down and and won't. So that's the good news. What was interesting is it it was a, um, a, a, long, a kind of almost a singular issue from the little bit that that I you know that the little bit of research that I did. Um, it was almost a singular issue that drove this whole thing from into an extended bargaining and then almost a, a, a nationwide strike. And that was a very um, very strict attendance policy. I think you I think you read a bit about it so you might want to kind of tee that up for us. yeah it's just it was a very strict no fault attendance policy that i think you're right that seems to be the single we, we always fight over wages and benefits and other things and i get that but that seemed to be the single issue that bogged all this stuff down is this very very strict no fault attendance policy and then i think the lack of available leave that went along with that um and I think it raises an issue that goes well beyond the the scope of this particular potential labor stoppage, which is kind of where we are as a nation on the issue of uh, workplace leave, paid or otherwise, and how far behind the rest of the world we are on that issue and how much catching up we need to do for the country that's supposed to be, uh, you know, the most, the, the, the top economy, the driver of the world economy, and yet other countries like Afghanistan are lapping us on issues of, of family, you know, maternity leave and family leave, and it's not, it's not right. Yeah, and it's, it's actually like, uh, that would, it was a, I mean, it was a different sort of flavor, I guess, of, of, but a similar issue in that, um, in the Trader Joe's election that just, uh, resulted in many or in, in unionization at two stores, uh, we talked about earlier in another show, um, the changes of the PTO policy want, were one of several issues that they drove and they basically took away some sick time and they cut, you know, they kind of combined, I guess, uh, PTO into, you know, trying to force people to use it for FMLA and all these different things at a time when, when employees are, are craving more and more flexibility, employers are trying to kind of ramp, ramp, that ramp down some of that flexibility and, and it's it is causing a lot of workplace friction that and, and you it, it can is i mean granted this didn't result in a strike but it you know it's a three years of negotiation and and what people were serious enough about it um that they were willing to maybe walk from their jobs and and the we won't spend too much more time on this but the other side of it was at, at the other thing that's happening in the railway in the, or in the railroad industry is they've cut, um, I mean, it's limited crews on trains anyway, and they've cut back a lot. Like there used to be a conductor and an engineer, and I guess the conductors or whatever are gone now. The guy that used to ride in the back in the caboose is gone. So folks are in, in that industry are, are, are asked to work a lot and, and really felt as if they were given very little uh, latitude and taking time off to the point where, like I said, they were ready to go on strike so it's uh and, and it and you know it may not be the same in a grocery store or manufacturing plant but if you're thinking about those kind of changes you really need to look uh 
not to say you shouldn't do them, you know, based on business needs and whatever, but you really need to look at the, the long-term impact on your relationship with your employees, whether yeah. they're unionized or not. Absolutely. Cause it's certainly an issue as I think is this, as the potential as the, the railway strike averted strike points out is definitely an issue that's on employees radar. And if it's on the, if it's on their radar, you know, it, it should be on your, as an employer, it should be on your radar too. Um, you know, I, I, like a lot of people believed that when Congress stepped in back in you know March of 2020 and passed really quickly enacted some paid leave related to, to COVID related absences, a lot of us thought that would be the beginning of the tide on this issue turning here in the States. Um, and then that expired. And, and as we saw with the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act and the, the, the Biden stimulus uh, legislation that, you know, Manchin um, and Kristen Sinema dug their heels in and said, no, we're not going to allow paid leave, you know, employee paid leave to be part of this package. And then that died again. So, you know, who knows when it's going to come here in the States, but the, the reality is, is that we are A, really far behind the rest of the world and B, as the railroad issue points out, it's an issue that employees care deeply about. So we as employers should be caring about it too. Yeah. And I, I've seen another trend just to, this will be the last, my last comment on this. I've seen another trend where article is that said that a lot of employers have, have um, now started to cut back on maternity and paternity leave as another, as I, I as, saw that too, as businesses, you know, get a little tighter on their finances and stuff. They're starting to cut back on that, you know, so it's uh, the give and take uh, in this, in this uh, particular labor market, in the, the haves and have nots, it'll be really interesting to see how everything shakes out. But there's a lot of a uh, lot of potential risk in making too too uh, big of a change, especially with the things that people seem to value more post pandemic, which is time off, you know, security, you know, that anyway. It's it's it, it's a, it'll be an ongoing challenge for HR people. Um, we touched just very briefly in the last show, but it was kind of still developing. We touched on joint employer. Uh, changes that the board has, they're, prom they're promulgating a new rule and they want to change the status again. And I know you said you wanted to touch on that for a minute. So why don't yeah. we go there next? I'm, I'm going to share my headline because it it's too good not to share. But when the, the NLRB dropped its notice of proposed rulemaking, which is for the non-lawyers or non-legislative geeks in the room, it's basically when the NLRB wants to change a rule, they got to give notice in their 60 day comment period before the board can officially change an administrative rule. But so when they drop their notice of proposed rulemaking to rewrite the standard for determining uh, joint employer status under the, under the act, um, the headline I came up with was like herpes, the NLRB's efforts to liberalize joint employment just won't go away. And, um, you know, we saw a more liberalized standard come up during the uh, Obama, uh, under Obama's board. Um, it got reversed under Trump's board uh, with some previous rulemaking, and now we're back again. And look, the, the bottom line is uh, the NLRB very, very much wants to do everything it can to hold, to, to expand joint employment liability as wide as it can. The old standard was you needed for a joint employer to be liable, for one employer to be liable for the wrongs of another employer. The secondary employer needed to have direct control over the terms and conditions of employment of the other employer's employer, uh, other employer's employees. So where you typically see that is with like a staffing agency and the 
workplace at which the staffing agency places temporary employees. That is a typical joint employment relationship. The NLRB now wants to expand that to include things like indirect control or reserved control um, over the terms and conditions of employment, which would expand, I think radically expand joint employment liability to cover things like uh, a franchisor becoming a joint employer over the employees of its franchisee. I've seen some people speculate that it might uh, make sports leagues um, joint employers over the employees of the individual, uh, over the, the employees of the individual teams. Um, there are, you might see things like um, general contractors become joint employers over the employees of the subs. Um, it is uh, uh, damaging to these relationships. Yeah. It will, to me, um, and the example I keep coming back to, and I focus on the, the, the franchise or franchisee model, because I think it has the most, uh, the, it has the potential to kind of wreak the most damage there, that if I'm a franchisor, like a McDonald's or, uh, you know, pick your big kind of national franchisor, we typically think of these in fast food, uh, uh, you know, kind of fast food type restaurants, but there's lots of businesses that operate on franchise models. If I'm McDonald's, for example, and because in my franchise agreement, I reserve control over things like the uniforms the employees have to wear and the menu in the restaurant and the language that's used around menu items and pricing and things like that, which is, that's what the, fran that's what the franchisees buy. They buy the look and the feel and the menu and the food. And so the franchisor is an interest in keeping that all uniform, obviously. And so if as McDonald's, if all of that control that I'm selling, right, not control over the the day, the, the ins and outs of what employees do on a day-to-day -day basis, but you know, the hat they wear and the logo they have on their shirt, if that's gonna make me jointly and severally liable for uh uh wrongs committed by the franchisee that I have no say or control over. And in the NLR, in the context of the National Labor Relations Act might, if they, if the franchisees employees unionize is going to obligate me to collective bargaining with those employees also as a, as a joint employer, I'm going to say to hell with it. I don't need, I don't need the franchisee to control what these folks do on a day-to-day -day basis and create liability for me that I may have to pay for. I might as well just control, own the restaurants directly and control the employees myself and do what I can to mitigate my risk rather than leaving it in the hands of some franchisee. And so I think the, the, the unintended consequence of this change is going to be a, maybe not the elimination, but at least a, a, a cause franchisors to really look at whether the franchise model still makes sense. And for the, I don't know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, yeah. I don't know what the number is of small business owners, which is what these franchisees are, you know, the small business owners that help drive our local economies, it's going to put them out of business. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's a, I know, um, I was at a, some meetings last year and then earlier this year, and um, franchise franchisors are very, very concerned about this. I think your your take is spot on from a risk uh, risk perspective for those business owners. 
and, and, and it concerns that their ability to, to run their businesses and both ends, the franchise or the franchisee. I had a question, John, related to one of maybe one of the more common uh, rather than franchise operations, but it, a lot of businesses employ 1099 um, employees, right? They, um, and they're, so they're, you know, contractors or whatever. And it's kind of a pretty routine thing. I mean, it's, there's FLSA stuff, which I don't want to get into, but I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of legal stuff around that. Does this joint employer standard impact that relationship in any way as, as well, or is that, is that not so much a reach? That might be more of a reach. I know the, the NLRB has separately looked at in the past, and I would assume it's on the agenda again for them to look at whether the, whether the act covers 1099 independent contractors, the same as it covers employees. But I think it's, I think that's a bit of a stretch to say that this particular rulemaking would extend to bring 1099 independent contractors under the, under the umbrella of the National Labor Relations Act. But it would not surprise me in the least, as we have seen in the past, um, to see the board take a look at whether the act, whether the act's definition of employees is broad enough to cover 1099 independent contractors. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. I, I wasn't sure. I don't, we don't like where I work, we don't use a lot of that kind of late that, that we don't use that uh, service much or those folks who are contractors right now. I mean, just a few select areas. So it's not something I touch on. Um, I'm going to, I know we wanted to talk about a board decision, but I just realized there is actually one big kind of just, I just wanted to mention a uh, big card check uh, recognition uh, where and you, it made me think of it when you mentioned sports teams, the major league baseball players association uh, circulated cards to, I guess, 6,000 minor league baseball players. Uh, and I asked them if they were being interested in being represented by MLBPA, which is a pretty successful sports union. The, the baseball players have some really great contracts uh, individually, but they also have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, strong rights under their labor agreement. And now they're going to uh, represent minor league baseball players who, according to one article I read, may, may earn as little as $12,000 a year when they're playing in the minor leagues. They grow up to become millionaires if they make the big show. But, maybe, uh, maybe grow up to, I mean, a, a very, very small. Percentage. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, few, yeah. Of them, few of them do, but a lot of them play for literally for the love of the game. Uh, and, and, and the interesting thing is that Major League Baseball, um, basically voluntarily recognized or, or did a card check election. They said, okay, we understand you've got the vast majority of the players. So we're going to voluntarily recognize this union. So they're essentially taking on a, uh, probably a huge, uh, I don't know. They're not, they're not going to make minor league baseball players millionaires, but they're taking on a, a, a big, uh, a big chunk of new union rep, newly represented union athletes and probably going to see some changes in the minor minor league system and the pay and the way things work down yeah, there. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting issue. And I wonder if not privy to the internal discussions inside Major League yeah. Baseball, but I wonder if the, the fluidity and mobility of individuals, particularly between the AAA level and the major leagues where you're, you know, in the in the you know in the union out of the union in the union out of the union as you move up and down, particularly between that 
at the top to the top level and yeah. the, the top minor league level. I wonder if that has something to do with it. I don't know because there, you know, there was a lockout earlier for this season, right? I mean, you're, uh, there was a lockout because of the, the five-year labor agreement that the, the major league baseball players and the major leagues had expired and they locked them out for about a month there. So their labor relations uh, has been over the years has been typically pretty uh, choppy. You know, there, there have been strikes, there have been lockouts, uh, so they don't get along that well. You know, the players don't really like the owners and the millionaires fight with the billionaires. I was just going to say, it's all gross because it's millionaires fighting yeah. with billionaires. <laughs> and, and in some cases, billionaires fighting with billionaires, right? Yeah. So it's all it's all a bit repugnant when you kind of yep. think about it. But then we all, we all support it because we all go to the games and buy our, you know, $8 hot dogs and $13 beers and yep. watch them on TV. And so, I mean, and you know, and I got my, you know, I got my, mem- you know, my logo crap is sitting, you know, is sitting in my closet. So, I mean, we all, we all feed into the system, but it is, it is a bit repugnant when you, when you actually stop yeah. and think about what's at stake here. Yeah. So anyway, it just, it's just interesting. It's sports, sports labor relations is, is a, a dimension and a universe of its own. So nothing really uh, impacts our, our people who would listen to us unless we happen to have the random billionaire wander by, but <laughs> it's doubtful. Well, uh, and, with, and with, and with, and with antitrust, you know, with anti antitrust exemptions for sports leagues, or at least some of them and other things, it's, it's just the, it, I mean, it's it's probably just filthy, dirty from top to bottom. Well, um, yeah, the but, National Football League is a sanctioned uh, IRS recognized nonprofit. Which... It's, again, <laughs> it, it, yeah, they're the they're the most profitable nonprofit uh, probably in the world. Anyway, so that yeah, I just thought it was interesting. So let's pivot back to the board. You had mentioned a was it the Troy Grove decision? Is that the right name? Yeah. The NLRB had an interesting decision that came out uh, a couple days ago. Uh, the issue, the, the case is Troy Grove. The issue is whether permanent replacement workers uh, are entitled to Weingarten rights. Weingarten rights are the rights of a uh, someone, uh, an employee covered by a collective bargaining agreement, uh, their right to request the presence of a union rep during an investigatory or disciplinary, uh, uh, investigatory or disciplinary interview. Uh, the issue in the case is whether those rights extend to um, permanent replacement workers, so the workers that uh, an employer hires to permanently replace. Uh, the employees who are out on strike. Uh, the board held that uh, they do. Uh, essentially, es- essentially said that the union is the bargaining exclusive bargaining rep for workers, whether they're the striking workers or the replacement workers. Um, it doesn't matter. And so because the permanent replacements are part of the respondents unionized employees, uh, the respondent being the the employer, then for purposes of determining whether they have Weingarten rights, they do because they just step in the shoes of the they, they step in the shoes of the striking workers for purposes of uh, rights under the National Labor Relations Act. Significant of a decision, uh, except that it is when you look at it in the broader context of what the board is hoping to do. I mean, Weingarten is is what it's a fifty year old decision at this point 45 yeah. 50 year old decision at this point and it the board has depending on which political party has the 3-2 majority on the board 
the board has vacillated over the years over whether non-unionized employees also have Weingarten rights. Um, the Clinton board back in the early 2000s said they do. The uh, Bush two board, um, I don't know, eight or 10 years later said they don't. Um, in 2017, the Obama board, uh, not in an official decision, but in an advice memo, um, again, called for the board to flip and extend Weingarten rights to non-union employees. The current NLRBs, the NLRBs current general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, uh, put out an advice memo shortly after she took the job where she laid out kind of her enforcement priorities and expanding Weingarten rights to non-union workers was pretty high on her list. And so I think that when the board gets the right case, um, it will it will take that leap and flip once again to the expansion or extension of Weingarten rights to non-union uh, non workplaces, non-union employees. And it's just interesting to me, we don't see these decisions come up that often. So it's interesting to me, anytime you see um, you know, Weingarten come up in a, you know, in a published in a published opinion of the National Labor Relations Board, particularly when the board general counsel is on record, um, I think it's 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 worth pointing out and bringing to employers' attention. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and I, I would, you know, um, given the the oscillation, I think that's the term that the board uses from time to time. The oscillation of the rule, you know, it's in, it's out, it's in, it's out. Um, I know some employers. Um, have just kind of adopted the position that look, we're going to just act as if Wayne Garden is in effect, you know, all the time, and we'll just make the if if somebody makes the request, and frankly, they are rare um, in in non-union companies. It's rare that you get these requests. I would say I don't know if your experience shows that, but that's what I that's what I it's, see. It's it's rare. It, yeah. it, it is rare. And I, I can make a really good argument as a lit as a litigator that defends like discrimination lawsuits that not a bad idea. You certainly want witnesses in the room. And when, when it's the employee and then the supervisor and an HR rep, you get you know the, the employees outnumbered. I can make an argument that allowing the employee to at least have a representative in yep. the room um, from an evidentiary standpoint and from the perception of this is a fair process where the employee was treated fairly and had their say, I can make a really good argument that that's something that that employer should be thinking about. Yeah, and, and it... And it it takes a, it takes it that issue off the plate a couple other ways. One is it doesn't make you the, a potential litigant with for the NLRB to reinstate Weingarten because somebody files a ULP, right? So you, you can avoid that cost. And then the other thing is, to be honest, it, it, under the Weingarten rule, that that, uh, that that employee who acts as the witness is literally there only as a witness. They are not allowed to participate in the- Yeah, they're not an advocate. They're not there to argue or, or write or litigate the decision during that meeting. They are there as a, right, as a witness to the proceedings. Period. So their, their, their participation is very limited and the, the risk is fairly low unless I guess they lie. Um, it, but it, that would come out in cross or whatever, hopefully, you know, with it anyway. So it, it, it's, it's not a bad idea from a practitioner tip to think about maybe putting wine garden in place in your, in your uh, non-unionized facilities as a policy, even, uh, even though the, the board itself may not require it under a legal standard, it, it, it has some pluses and some minuses, but I think the pluses outweigh the minuses for that type of policy. Um, Anyway, any any other thoughts on that? 
No, I think we're good. I think it's, I think we should move on to uh, uh, your lead, uh, which is um, the, the Sherm article about working cooperatively with labor unions. Yeah. So on, and this is about a, this is actually about a, a this was put, published on September 7th, but I just ran across it a couple of days ago. And this is a Sherm article written by Tammy Lytle, who I believe is a, a writer for Sherm staff. Um, and the, the article is entitled, How Companies Benefit from Partnering with Unions. And it's a, the, the subheadline is, as, as organized labor gains clout in US workplaces, HR can partner with unions to harness the power of the workforce. And I gotta admit, um, uh, that headline made my made my eyes squint and my forehead wrinkle a little bit. But I want to read the first <laughs> couple paragraphs of this article, and I I think this is written in with some context. Maybe that's not it. That they didn't include all the context. So I'm I'm going to read this, but I'm going to preface it by saying what I'm about to read. I think this may be a situation where somebody acquired a business, but they don't actually say that. But the the first couple paragraphs uh, of this article start out. When John Fenton, CEO of Patriot Rail Company, first looked at his railroads stevedoring, I think that's the right way to say that, stevedoring business, it was ugly. Productivity was weak, safety was sketchy, freight damage claims were high. He headed to the port in Jacksonville, Florida, where 158 stevedores worked per shift unloading cargo. Fenton found that they were ferried to the about the job site in a jalopy of a van and that they had no place to escape the sun to eat lunch. I got an earful, he said. Next stop was Houston to meet with union leaders about improving conditions for employees. Fenton followed up with air-conditioned buses and an indoor lunchroom with a microwave and refrigerator, along with better training programs, personal protective gear, and work boots for employees. The workers responded. Freight damage claims dropped 70%. The turnaround time for getting freight on the trucks and out of port decreased by more than 50%, and the operation went 18 months without an injury. All of a sudden, we were one of the best operators, Fenton says. When you create a culture of commitment and care, he adds, that's where the magic happens. He calls this philosophy employee first leadership. That's a wonderful story. <laughs> um, and, and, and it, when I read it, it made my brow furrow even more because I was like, okay, there's nothing wrong with what he did. There's nothing wrong with talking to the union. Like I said, I'm presuming that he bought this company and the union was probably already in place. Um, I don't know that for certain. Yeah, I mean, let's look at it. I mean, positive and harmonious relationships with your labor union, it, it's not a bad thing. No, right? not I mean, at that, all. That, that's what you want. You don't want, you don't want to be in battle mode with your union all the time because you're going to have, you're going to have angry employees. You're going to have strikes. You're going to have walkouts. You're going to have, um, you know, you're going to be in grievance meetings all the time. You're going to the combative, a combative relationship with your employees union is not the goal. The goal should be harmony. Um, when you were reading that, I could like hear the angels coming down from the heaven, like but, singing. But the, it, but the thing that the, 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 the sad underlying truth is if the union was there or not, I don't know exactly how that, like I said, I don't, I can't figure that out, but regardless, they had really bad working conditions. That was the company's fault. It was also the union's fault if they were already there. Uh, and this, you know, that they got a new owner or, or again, presuming that he made these changes fantastic. It, but it really wasn't the union that I, at least that I can discern from this. It wasn't the union that did, did this. And they could, and companies that don't have unions 
have bad working conditions and they do that by choice and they could make these same kind of turnarounds you don't need a union to to make this happen right and 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 to be honest by if you if you were running it, or if, especially if you acquire a company without a union where the conditions are jalopies and you know no no place to eat lunch except out in the hot sun you ought to be doing something to fix that as an employer anyway right if if you want to stay non union for sure yeah yeah cuz that's the real that's the real crux of what's going on with the reason that you know unions are you know resurging right now is employees are really unhappy with their working conditions and they the, their employers that are even though Starbucks is you know kind of been the poster child, um, their their working conditions haven't been that great, and 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 so they're in the company they can't get help or fixes from the company, and they go outside and look. And I know we've been through this on the other three shows ad nauseum, so I don't want to go down Starbucks path again. But this this just struck me as as uh, like that perspective as the opening struck me as odd. And then in the article, then they start going into Starbucks and all the other things. And there's comments from consultants and people who sit on both sides of the labor management table talking about how valuable unions are and so on and so forth. I, look, I worked in, I've worked in numerous unionized facilities and you can have great relationships with your labor unions, right? Especially if they've been in there, the legacy relationships, you can have really good relationships, really effective partnerships. Um, and, and, and you could have that and one day you may wake up and find there's a new leadership and it can, it, that can all be shot to hell in a handbasket because somebody came in and took over the local and has an entirely different agenda, right? And they want to be a reform union or whatever. So it's, you know, it's something you got to work at, but it, like labor unions, at least in this article, I felt like they kind of portrayed them as like a magic solution for better safety and better productivity. And it's, it, it's not true. Right? They're not necessary. They have a role. Um, and but that they're not. I mean, you shouldn't read this article, I guess, and I don't think this is what Sherman intended. But you shouldn't read this article and think like, "Wow, I maybe I want to do that kind of turnaround story." Because you can do that on your own. Yeah, and, you and it's a lot you, more you effective, right? You 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 don't need a union to be a good employer, right? Uh, if you if if you're a good employer, then your employees don't. There's no need for the employees to unionize because you're doing all the things for them that the union says they're going to do for them anyway. And you can right, and you can be, you can be an employer of choice for your employees without the employees going and choosing a union, and and that should be the goal of every employer, um, unionized or non-unionized, should be yes. a workplace that the employees want to come work at every day. They're treated well, they're compensated fairly, they feel good about coming to work every day, um, and uh, there is good positive relationships between. Uh, rank and file employees and management. That should be what every workplace in America looks like. Now we understand that it's not. And for those that can't, that can't see their path to that on their own, uh, employees sometimes, and now, and now at a, at a clip that we haven't seen in recent history, um, go to unions to get that done for them. But you are a hundred percent correct that it is not it is not a path of necessity to have just a good place to work for it to, for that workplace to be unionized. Yeah. And in fairness to the point you made a, a, a second ago, if you do, if you do, you know, become in, enmeshed in a relationship with a union um, and they touch on this point in the article a little bit, you know, you're, if you, if you campaign against a union, um, as, a, as an employer who's currently non-union, 
if you campaign against you, you're going to go in with some raw feelings, right? And there's going to be some, you know, there's going to, there's a, there's some work you're going to need to do to begin to develop a relationship, um, assuming that the union gets a contract and all those kind of things. But, but that, and that's certainly possible. And it's certainly good HR and labor relations practice to work on that. Uh, but I go back to what we've talked about before, and you, you just said it very well is, you know, do, do this work, do the difficult work of being a great employer up front early on, and you don't have to deal with this kind of stuff for the most part. I mean, that's been the trend we've seen for the last 50 years, you know, it's just, uh, it's not impossible to, to be a good employer uh, without a, without a labor union. By any yeah. I mean, I'll, 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 I mean, I'll, I'll over, I'll, I'll make an overgeneralization, but I think you can put employers into two camps. There are employers that treat their employees like some fungible thing that they can chew up and spit out and yep. replace at will. And there are, and there are employers that understand and recognize that their employees are their most important asset, that whatever, whatever their thing is, whether it's a widget they produce or a service they provide, um, none of that happens without the employees performing that service or, or producing or creating that widget. And I, I think business, the, the businesses that are the most successful are the ones that treat their employees like the business's most important asset. And I just don't think, I, I think the business community as a whole, I think needs to, I think needs to work on that. Yeah. And, and I guess the other point I want to touch on before we wrap up the show is, or a couple other points is that there, there are some, um, and if you've never worked in a union in, environment, I saw an article the other day that said in the next decade, labor relations specialists are basically going to become extinct because there's so few of us growing up in the in the current marketplace and, and, and the need is less, uh, except for these hotspots like we're living in now. But um, the, the truth is, if you if you didn't have a labor union and you you know you you suddenly are are find yourself dealing with one and you, you negotiate a, a collective bargaining agreement, you're going to find some very fundamental shifts in your in your cultural relationship with your employees. And I know I know that the labor side people hate hate us talking about third parties and all that kind of stuff, you know. But they really do labor contracts really do change a lot of things. They they overlay a lot of administrative. Uh, rules and regulations on the employer that you're not bound by it typically as a non-union employer many so like one example is um, you know a lot of most employers consider themselves at will employers if they don't have a collective bargaining agreement and very few actually are at will we're all we all operate in modified at will environments depending on what state and jurisdiction we operate in there's a lot of laws that modify at will but we don't have a just cause standard which is a higher a higher standard that's typically included in a in a labor agreement, right? And that those run in tandem with arbitration and grievance procedures and arbitrations. And so there's there, there's a more difficult road to walk if you if you're trying to terminate a, a, a bad actor in your organization under under a CBA. So that has a value to the I assume to the the employees that are protected by those clauses and rules, and it has a cost to the employer. Right. And it, it makes it more difficult. It also can do things like indirectly. It has the consequence sometimes of making managers less willing to step up and address problem employees because they have to go through all that you know, bureaucracy to get them out the door. Um, and, and so then it kind of it, it hides people in place in your and we talk about quiet quitting. This is sort of the, the, the labor agreement equivalent of it. We get a bad employee 
who hides under cover of the, the collective bargaining agreement and they, they managed to linger or malinger in your organization for years where they probably wouldn't in a non-union environment, right? Yeah, so there's which a is, cost which, which to is, all that. Yeah, which is also, which is part of what gives, makes people so union hesitant is because of the perception, um, which is often grounded in reality that unions uh, shield and protect bad employees, so. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know. I don't know if you had a chance to read the article and if you had anything there, but I, at least I got that off my chest. I no, I, I did. I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, we saw we saw with the star. I, I hate to bring everything back to Starbucks, but it is the the kind of the face of unionization for the time being in America. Um, we, we've seen, you know, Starbucks investors because Starbucks is a publicly traded publicly traded company, which, right? We've seen some of its in larger investors calling for Starbucks to be um, at least a union neutral with organizing that is not not actively opposed the efforts of employees to unionize because of the, the perception that or the belief by the investors that Starbucks um, aggressive anti union tactics are going to uh, harm the brand, which will in turn uh, harm the stock, which will in turn harm their uh, harm their investment. So I think. Um, I think uh, I, I find that to be interesting, and I as do I find interesting employers that um, welcome unions with open arms. Employers who say um, we we believe this is part of our we we accept this as part of our social our, our you know our social contract with our employees to uh, welcome the union and partner with the union to make this a better workplace for our employees. So um, Fair State, which is a brewery in Minneapolis, was is one of, it's I think it's the largest unionized craft brewery in, in the US. Um, but when their union, when their employees decided to unionize, the CEO said, yeah, we'll voluntarily recognize you, come on in. Um, and they've now formed a cooperative um, and it's a very collaborative uh, uh it's a very collaborative relationship with their employees but the the ceo is on record as saying that he feels that's part of his social responsibility to uh, not be anti-union and actually not just be neutral but to be pro-union so there's all different ways to accomplish this but to me it always comes back to the kind of core uh point we've been beating over the head which is you you don't need a union to do this um and uh, yeah we we do have a i think we do have a corporate responsibility to be a good employer, but we can do that without, we can do that without unionizing. Yeah. And I mean, and if it makes sense to a business owner, I'm, then, you know, I get it. And, and, and like I operated in a union facility with almost 2000 employees and we went a whole year without a single grievance being filed because we had, we worked really hard on, you know, trying to resolve problems rather than, you know, argue over grievances. Right. You know, and, and, you know, I was proud of that, but it, it was based on a highly effective, and well-built relationship and mutual respect and trust and all that kind of stuff. So certainly you can have a great relationship with your union if you have one. And um, if it makes sense for somebody to bring one in, I get that. Um, it wouldn't be my choice, but that, but that I don't own a business either. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, so I think that that kind of brings us to an end uh, of this uh, episode four of labor relatedly. Um, I got, I'm, technically on vacation today. So I want to go out and spend at least an hour outside in the sun before it starts raining. Right again. on. Please do that. Yeah. You got to go back to, before you got to go back to work next week. We have uh, tropical storm Fiona 
blowing around out in the Gulf somewhere. I'm not sure if it's going to hit land or not, but uh, that's looming off the Florida coast right now. So we may get drenched this weekend. But anyway, it was great to catch up with you, John. Interesting talks as always. And I will go ahead and end the episode and, and get it uploaded here in the next little while. Have a great weekend. Right on. Cheers. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks. Bye.